Welcome to the next edition of Grid Forward Chats. I'm Bryce Yonker. Today, we're pleased to have with us Catherine Blunt. Catherine, thanks for joining. Thank you so much for having me. Can you briefly introduce yourself? Um, what are you doing currently? What keeps you busy? And maybe a little bit on your background? Sure. I cover uh, power and utilities for the Wall Street Journal. Um, uh, my coverage, um, my remit is is national, but I often cover issues in the West, including the many of the wildfire issues we're seeing now. Um, I've been doing this for about five years. And uh, a lot of my earlier work focused on, on PG&E. I wrote a book about the, you know, the many um, issues that converged to create such a challenging set of circumstances for that company uh, that came out almost a year ago. Exactly. It's called California Burning. I am holding the book. Uh, thank you for putting all the effort into writing such a thorough uh, endeavor. What made you decide to, to jump into something so significant? That's no small feat. Well, it wasn't necessarily, well, I suppose in terms of overall coverage of PG&E, it wasn't necessarily a choice that I had <laughs> per se. Um, I, I started in this role at the Journal on November 5th, 2018, and the campfire ignited three days later. So it became very clear within a matter of weeks that this would be a, a critical focus for me covering utilities. And I had the, you know, the great privilege of working with a couple of other reporters who are very talented and knew the, the utility space better than I did. Um, and we together, you know, did a series of stories that I'm, I'm very proud of and proved to be a good foundation for a project like this. So maybe before we dive into some of the details in the book, uh, you, you cover a lot that's happening around energy and utility space. Um, again, maybe you, you got drawn into it yourself, but what drew you into being so involved on this topic around wildfires? Well, I think, again, I mean, it was um, having that foundational coverage of PG&E. I mean, PG&E has faced so many distinct challenges related to wildfire risk mitigation over the years. And so then having that as the foundation of my expertise has helped to, um, you know, examine other aspects of this as it relates to other utilities. So I know a lot of our conversations going to focus around wildfires, obviously, given your book and given some recent activities, um, but maybe taking a step back from that a little bit, um, you know, where do you see the priorities of electric grid operators? Where do you see some of the really active trends in the energy space right now taking shape? I think whether you're talking about a utility, you know, or an RTO or anything of that nature, certainly there's been a lot of focus on on the energy transition and making sure that goes, you know, as smoothly as possible, um, you know, balancing the the push to reduce carbon emissions with you know, the need to maintain reliability. But I think we're, we're certainly seeing a lot of operational risks emerge, particularly in the West related to wildfire mitigation that perhaps aren't being addressed as, quick, addressed as quickly as they need to be, given the kind of the change in the risk profile throughout the, throughout the region. Well, let's dive in on the wildfire topic. Um, each summer and, you know, sometimes outside the summer with that uh, Boulder fire in December, there seems to be devastating wildfires. Um, and it doesn't seem that many communities that have the urban-rural interface are very immune. Um, what would you say we're starting to understand more about the overlap between grids and, and wildfire? Well, I, th- I guess a few things to keep in mind. Certainly, we, when we're talking about wildfire, power lines are not the number one cause of ignition. I mean, there's there's so many different things that can create, um, you know, ignite a wildfire. That being said, power lines have been implicated in some of the deadliest and most destructive over the past decade. And it's clear that um, wildfire risk is increasing in part because of drought, uh, in part simply because um, people have moved into, more people have moved into areas at risk of wildfire, making the consequence 
of that fire potentially greater, whether that's caused by infrastructure failure or not. Um, and so, I mean, climate change is definitely an underlying theme here. And more uh, utilities across the West are recognizing the need to do more to make sure that they're taking all the necessary steps, whether that be preventative maintenance or you know, proactive power shutoffs or other things, to make it so that when the conditions get very risky, they've done enough to minimize the chance of their lines playing a role in any significant fire. And um, But different utilities are moving at different speeds, and it's um, a little bit hard to predict where the next area of real intense risk is going to be. So it's certainly a challenging set of circumstances. So I know this is a broad question, and we're going to get into it a little bit later details, but as we jump in, I guess the question would be, are we learning from these major events? And if you would argue that that we are, is there ways that we can institutionalize these lessons and, and put the practices in, in place that really allow us to, to mitigate things at the scale that's required? I think the short answer is yes. Um, utilities are absolutely learning from each other. Uh, they're doing so actively. Um, you know, critics of sort of the preparedness or lack thereof of the uh, utilities in this region might say like more could have been done earlier. There's been signs that fire risk is increasing throughout the region. It's been that way for, you know, quite some time. San Diego Gas and Electric began grappling with this actively after 2007 fire, right? And the California Public Utilities Commission required more from the Southern California utilities by way of um, wildfire prep or wildfire risk mitigation didn't require the same of PG&E because it didn't appear that PG&E service territory would be at elevated risk of wildfire in the way that it was, even though signs were emerging that that wasn't in, in fact the case and it should have been held to the same standard as the Southern California utilities. And then, you know, outside of California, you've seen utilities in Oregon try to observe California's experience, but perhaps didn't move quickly enough on that front, right? And having all the um, available tools in place to mitigate fire risk. We saw that back in 2020. And now, of course, as we as we know, um, Hawaiian Electric is facing criticism for a number of different things surrounding related to wildfire risk. Um, there's no official determination of what ignited the, the fire in Maui, but it looks as though power lines are implicated. And it's faced criticism for everything from moving fairly slowly to put in place a comprehensive plan to address fire risk, as well as not having a plan in place to proactively shut off power when the conditions get riskier, which is not a regulatory requirement. And the utility is not an outlier. But to the kind of the original question, you know, it's easy to say in hindsight, more should be done. But I think we're probably at a place in which more can be done just because different, you know, so many different utilities have experience with this at this point. And there could be probably more done to establish what best practice is. I was maybe going to take it in a different order, but let's jump into what can be done since since you're starting to go there. Um, mitigating the impact of wildfire um, from communities uh, is a huge undertaking. And so what sort of solutions are you seeing that come up? What does the toolkit look like? What are some of the things that can be put in place that that can really be helpful? Sure. So um, I think that pg e has a very interesting suite of solutions that it's trying to employ at this point. And it kind of covers a lot of different ways in which utilities might go about this. I mean, most basically for one, it's, it's, it's simply establishing, you know, good inspections and maintenance practices. Right. And, and not to say that the company is doing that perfectly, but they are trying to do it differently than they have historically, you know, using technology like drones and other things to evaluate the state of different pieces of hardware and other things. Um, you know, for a while they had a really intense vegetation management 
approach in place, just the simple act of trying to keep trees far away from power lines, that's significant. They've since sort of altered their approach to that because they have new technology settings in place, or relatively new, that make it so that if anything comes in contact with the line, whether that be a tree branch or a squirrel or what have you, it will shut off immediately on contact, which they say reduces ignitions uh, to a greater degree than simply clearing trees. Um, kind of interesting to think about. And then their, you know, their long-term plan is to bury 10,000 miles of power lines, basically eliminating fire risk by virtue of putting them underground. And you see, um, and other things that, I mean, another thing the PG is doing less of is like covered conductor, simply insulating it. So there's something, you know, comes into contact and won't spark. I know throughout the West, other utilities are also using that kind of automatic shutoff setting. Um, there has been some talk elsewhere in California of expanding the number of lines that are going to go underground. And certainly, and I should mention, um, in California, all the large utility companies have plans in place to proactively de-energize the lines when risky, uh, in, in periods of risky conditions, usually autumn, when strong winds pick up and make the risk of fire spread very great. Um, other utilities are trying to solidify plans so that they can effectively do this as needed. Some other utilities have these plans in place, but it's to date pretty much been not exclusively, but most widely used in California. Can we talk a little bit about uh, advanced forecasting and integrated planning? I know those are kind of two different topics, but how would you kind of maybe articulate or further define how those those tools are being used? I know in the general sense that that is happening. I can't speak uh, well to that uh, particular element of this, but I, what I can say is the situational awareness is certainly um, a part of the puzzle, especially when you're planning the the public safety power shutoffs. Um, I think, you know, the California utilities sort of tried to pioneer or at least pioneer the really expansive use of like weather stations, weather cameras, um, just general um, data, probably AI, I would imagine, and just trying to get a much better granular view of the conditions on the ground so that they can make the appropriate choices when it's getting riskier, whether that's turning off the power or taking some other step to try to minimize ignition risk. And one of the challenges in having a, a successful public safety power shutoff program is that I mean, you're trying to limit the use of that, right? It comes with, I mean, reliability, safety risks are serious, so are reliability risks, right? A lot of critical infrastructure needs electricity, clearly. There's a lot of customers that rely on electricity for medical needs. It's not easy to ask people to be in the dark for any amount of time. So having that situational awareness is critical and being able to effectively limit the scope of what you're doing. Um, is there anything you would add on sectionalization or kind of breaking down the grid into smaller bite-sized chunks so you can That's target? That's part of it too, solutions? absolutely. Yeah, having sectionalizers so that you can take a more surgical approach to the shutoffs. Um, and uh, it, the one interesting experience that Californians had was in 2019, um, PG&E implemented a, a massive PSPS event kind of for the first time, like a really large one. And a lot of people, a lot of people were in the dark for, I think, as long as four days. And one of the big criticisms there was it just didn't have the capability to do it in a more surgical way. And so, you know, in the face of risk, it shows safety over reliability, understandably speaking, given the circumstances that it was dealing with. But without the ability to parcel it up, it was just sweeping and a lot of chaos ensued and economic damages and other things. Are there any breakthrough or especially innovative efforts that you're excited about? One that comes to mind for me, I know some national labs are working on de-energizing a, a, a line free fall. So the amount of real-time data and controls you need to 
do to be able to make that a reality is pretty sophisticated. But are there any other elements that are in that realm that you've come across that are interesting to you? No, I think that we'll have to keep our eyes on how AI continues to advance a number of the different efforts that that we're talking about now. Um, I've heard you know, anecdotally just employed in a lot of different ways and in, in especially managing, you know, records and images, something that's been historically kind of hard to do. Um, I mean, just even digitally. Um, so to have AI processing and that kind of stuff and be able to use it uh, for preventative maintenance purposes and other things is pretty interesting. Um, I, but they, what you mentioned sounds interesting too. So PSPS, you've already brought it up, I don't know, two or three times. It's a it's a new term in the vernacular of grid operators in the West and some other parts of the world. Um, how much do you see public power, uh, public safety power shutoffs be, being used, or do you think more targeted solutions will be used, or is it going to be a combination of things? What what sort of response do you have to how that gets used in the toolkit looking ahead? Oh, definitely, you know, in, used in combination with a, a suite of different mitigation measures. But I think it's safe to say this is a tool that's going to be employed more frequently going forward. And I say that because not every Western utility has a plan in place right now to do it, but a lot of them are working on it, right? So it's not something historically they've had the means to do or, or even, I mean, going further back, the need to do, right? So now there's both the need and the means and they're trying to get plans in place. It's um, uh, reflective of both of those those things. So I think that's something that it's going to become certainly more of a reality going forward um, and probably, you know, seasonally and, you know, with luck in a limited way if the other technology is used effectively. So maybe we can back ourselves up and talk a little bit about the context by which these activities are happening in and in business models and regulatory regimes. So my first question will be a, a, about kind of the utility, you know, um, business model itself. Generally speaking, utilities make money from the capital investments um, that they then recoup over um, rates that are paid by their customers on usage. Um, are there elements of the utility business model that you see working well or not so well with regards to, you know, customers and threats, whether it's wildfire or other just resiliency related events on the on the electric grid? Yeah, I and mean, without getting into sort of an extended philosophical debate on like different structures in place from a regulatory standpoint, I mean, it's true that it's like, for the most part, the utility makes money on the large capital investments, um, expenses, you know, whether that be inspections or maintenance or vegetation management, pass through costs that's recovered, but, you know, profit on it. So one of the challenges for pretty much every utility is, you know, how do you effectively balance the interests of shareholders and the interests of customers, because a lot of the expenses that we're talking about have a direct bearing on safety. Um, we're moving into a period in which we need more capital investment broadly, right? I mean, utilities are planning record capital investments in the system to prepare for electrification, to harden against the effects of climate change, um, to replace aging infrastructure. A lot of elements of the grid have been in place for you know as long as a century in some cases. And so that's going to cost a lot of money. Um, those are necessary investments, but we're also in some places, utilities face real rate pressure, right? One way is that historically kind of kept rates down, given that expenses are also recoverable is to minimize expenses, free up more money to invest as capital. And it's not to say that like, this is an impossible balance to strike, but it's hard. Yeah, it's, 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 it's difficult. And one of the issues that, that PG&E faced over the last decade was that, um, 
it was minimizing our expense costs, specifically kind of maintenance and inspection costs to the point where um, it was not fully aware of the risks throughout the system. And that proved to be really damaging, especially in the case of the campfire. I mean, the campfire of 2018 ignited when a hook on a century-old transmission tower broke nearly in half and dropped a live wire. I mean, the wear on that hook was visible for a very long time, but nobody saw it. And uh, I mean, apparently. And um, so again, I mean, it's just challenging balance to strike. Every utility faces slightly different dynamics, but we're in a period which is going to be really critical to have regulatory oversight of spending on both sides. So PG&E obviously made a goal of 10,000 miles uh, to, to bury uh, of their previously overhead lines. Uh, that's going to be no inexpensive feat. Um, who pays for these investments that we're going to use to harden our grid? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we do. The short answer is, is ratepayers do. And, um, you know, PG&E, is, it's a great example because if you've ever wanted to justify a huge capital uh, investment like that, right, burying 10,000 miles of wire to permanently reduce the risk of, or permanently almost eliminate the risk of fire in the areas in which the lines are underground, I mean, PG&E has a pretty strong case for it, right? It's they're 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 uh, they face great risk of fire in their service territory, but you know it's tough. It's like they have a lot of expense work to do in the interim, right? Whether that be with vegetation management or inspections and maintenance, and um, rates in California are very high. Um, and there's been other issues, like for example, like the extreme fluctuations that we've seen in natural gas prices have affected the cost of generation. And so, um, kind of coming at all sides, it's, it's hard to manage this. Oh, and then on top of that, just to make things even more complicated, the company sought bankruptcy protection after, um, uh, the 2017, 2018 fires, and it didn't emerge like financially healthier than it was going in. So it's like somewhat constrained in its ability to raise debt and equity. And so, um, just the, the financial challenges are very great. Uh, but so, yeah, here's the thing. It's like, it, not to sound like a broken record, but like the role of the regulator is really interesting in all of this. As you see different utilities come in and propose very large capital spending plans, like a lot of which, uh, much of which are probably very necessary for whatever reason, whether that be safety or reliability or um, overall carbon reduction goals, right? Um, but just making sure like the exact, <laughs> the right balance of spending is being recouped from customers at a time when electricity is getting more expensive. That's an important role to have. Fantastic. So I want to go off on, I don't want to call them tangents, but some other kind of topics that are unfolding in the energy ecosystem. The first one will be kind of generally around equity. And when, when it comes to um, impact of maybe the most vulnerable in our communities, um, outages and wildfires, they can often hit those communities the hardest. How do stakeholders look to make sure that when they're making investments to improve resiliency or lower uh, uh, wildfire risk, that the folks that need to see those benefits the most are, are seeing those, um, those uh, changes come to a reality? Yeah, I think there's a, maybe a few ways to answer that question. I mean, for one, I mean, there's always kind of conversations about different rate structures, right, for um, kind of different tiers of customers. Um, but I think there's also just talk about trying to deploy different solutions. And if you think about some like remote um, rural towns in the, you know, the Sierra foothills or, or wherever, I mean, there's more talk about having microgrids so that if there's like reliability slash safety decisions that need to be made, you're not compromising customers who might not have, you know, be able to drive a few towns over and stay in a hotel or whatever. Um, so things like that. And um, yeah, I mean, there's, 
talk about how to expand access to backup power, how to expand access to solar plus storage, um, I guess, means of kind of some distributed solutions that could help um, mitigate some of these challenges. And yeah, I mean, the the whole, the, the financial piece of it, it can be difficult to solve, but there's some things that can be done. All right. So the role of energy markets uh, can't be understated and the West is really working its way through what the future iteration of regional markets looks like. Um, do you think the topic of wildfire impacts and grid resiliency comes together with these discussions on next steps for regional markets? Uh, certainly to an extent I do. I mean, I think that there, every regional market uh, in the country right now is having basically a discussion about how to um, how to effectively manage the energy transition, how to effectively manage you know, the integration of wind and solar and storage and kind of what that means from a market design standpoint and ensuring reliability. That's, I mean, that's kind of the foremost function of um, any kind of grid operator or RTO. I think that, I mean, there remains an evolving conversation in the West as to whether there needs to be some sort of West-wide market that would allow for a better transfer of power between states and, states and you know, just sub-regions. And to some extent, I mean, I don't know. I mean, if you see wildfires having a significant constraint on transmission or something somewhere, could that help? Probably. Um, but I think that you know, for the most part, the, the market discussion, at least today, is mostly centered on uh, maintaining reliability and you know ensuring the greatest integration of renewables and the most effective integration. Maybe my last of the kind of other topics will be around electrification. It certainly seems reasonably, reasonably apparent that increased interest in electrified transportation is coming around the corner. That's going to make the collective us all more reliant on the electric system. What kind of impact do you think that trend has for wildfire risk, grid resiliency in those topic areas? Right. So, um, I mean, electricity demand in the U.S. is set to increase for the first time in a long time partly as a result of this push toward electrification. And yeah, I mean, if you think about transitioning your, you know, your mode of transport and your home in some cases to, to run entirely on electricity, that makes you very reliant on the system. And so what we're talking about here with issues with um, dealing with wildfire risk, I mean, to the extent any of this involves um, intentional outages, whether that be an outage resulting from a power line that tripped off on contact because the technology settings are, are such or the proactive shutoff seasonally when the winds pick up. Um, if you don't have a means of powering your home through that event, it could pre- pre- present some significant challenges. So you are seeing greater increase in you know, the various forms of backup power that you can have. Um, what's your earlier point about kind of like, you know, equity and access, that remains something that we need to discuss uh, collectively going forward. Well, I know we only have a little bit more time, so maybe a couple more questions here. Um, with the changing climate, it seems that threat from wildfires are certainly not slowing down or going away. Um, what can the energy community and and the partnering organizations that it can bring to the table um, really do uh, to deal with uh, the realities of, of these threats? Yeah, so I mean, without discounting the fact that there's been growing recognition of these risks for some time and there's been a lot greater engagement on behalf of or companies and, and stakeholders. Um, one thing that I was, I was certainly the case um, in reporting on PG&E and also appears to be, potentially be the case with Hawaiian Electric based on some recent reporting that I've done is, you know, companies, not just PG&E, not just Hawaiian Electric, but a lot of utilities have been focused very much on uh, helping to facilitate the energy transition and, and meeting ambitious carbon reduction targets. 
um, and seemingly less so on operational risk until it was too late. And that is, to be very clear, that's neither an indictment of renewables nor an assertion that a company can't do both at once, right? Utility companies have to do both at once to kind of focus on like long-term carbon reduction efforts in terms of procuring more renewables per state mandates and, and other kind of reasons driving the energy transition forward and make sure that there's like commensurate resources dedicated to like assessing what risks they need to address from an operational standpoint, right? What can more can be done, for example, to address wildfire risk that's relevant in the rest or storm risk on the East Coast or, or whatever the, the, the climate-driven operational risk may be. I think it's just sort of like, a, again, it's just like, Utilities across the country should be asking themselves that question. Do they have resources on the energy transition side and the operational risk side? So that's my thought on that. Um, Well, I know it's somewhat difficult, but you've recently put a piece out um, in the journal about um, the Hawaiian fires. So in in general, while the uh, recovery still unfolds and and the um, uh, the looking into the causes is still uh, undetermined. What are you starting to, to learn about from the Hawaii fires? Is there any reflections you have um, from, from the Maui uh, disaster? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, first of all, of course, it's extremely tragic and acknowledging, of course, that we don't know for sure that power lines are implicated in this fire. It looks, it looks as though they might be based on some of the early evidence that's come out. And if that is indeed the case, there's really some kind of eerie parallels with what happened with, with PG&E, but I think, you know, to put it at the highest level, it, it, it may be that the utility company kind of failed to recognize the extent to which wildfire risk was something that needed to be addressed very quickly. Um, the company in 2019 came out with a kind of an announcement or a press release that said that they wanted to do more to address this in part because they recognized growing risk on the islands and wanted to you know, do more to assess what exactly that looked like. And part of it was because the, the company was observing what was happening in California. You know, PG&E was going through bankruptcy. It was a hugely financially consequential event for that company. And um, they signaled that they wanted to get ahead of it. But the question is, might have already been behind. <laughs> and so um, the company then hired a consultant to make some recommendations for uh, fire risk mitigation um, and ultimately filed with the commission a plan to address fire risk in 2022. As we know, the regulatory process uh, is not resolved overnight. That proceeding is still ongoing. So they haven't gotten you know, permission to raise rates to recoup the costs of the investments they wanted to make that were specific to wildfire. So you know, it's kind of just an unfortunate reminder that this is a utility that, especially in hindsight, can appear to be moving slowly. You know, The regulatory process can appear to move very slowly. I mean, this is all kind of after a disaster, right? Just a question of like, what more could be done? When did you know? It's a tough question to answer. And so, um, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll be doing more reporting. So uh, stay tuned. Yeah. Thanks for tracking it. And, and hopefully lessons will be learned and socialized. Um, so our last question um, I'll, that we'll wrap up here really is around how do we manage this extreme risk? So managing a risk is as extreme to wildfire threat to an entire community really requires so many people in places working and rowing in the same direction. Um, how is there ways that we can ins- encourage what I'll call maybe extreme collaboration in an area where there truly is extreme climate imp- impacts? Well, we're certainly beginning to see more. And I think that the short answer would be, I hope so. Um, but in this, you know, this particular space and addressing these particular challenges, there are indeed a lot of different stakeholders and 
uh, I'll just say that it can be hard to get everyone rowing in the same direction, depending on the nature of the challenge. Well, Catherine, thanks for being on with us. Thanks for your reporting. Um, For those who haven't, I don't know who in our community hasn't, but go get California Burning. It's a great resource. And Catherine, thanks for being on with us. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Bryce Yonker here with Grid Forward. We have the special opportunity today to hear from uh, a community member directly impacted by the recent Lahaina fires. Um, Leanne Dreisen is with Trilogy Excursions. Um, Leanne and I go way back, we're university friends, and they're one of the bigger employers um, in the community in Lahaina. Um, So listen in as Leanne and I talk about their family and businesses experience. Um, kind of the first-hand account of, of what it's uh, like to experience a fire as devastating as the one that their community um, has had. Um, please, if you're interested in donating, Grid Forward will be contributing to some of the recommendations that Leanne shares, and the notes will be in, uh, the links for those uh, organizations will be in the notes for our podcast. Leanne, thank you for being on with us. Um, Leanne is a, a good friend of mine who I've known for a number of years, and her family uh, it runs the organization Trilogy Excursions. And Leanne, um, you're based in Lahaina, so uh, thank you for taking some time to, to share your reflections on the, the recent activities. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for reaching out and happy to be here. So our business, Trilogy Excursions, we are a family-owned and operated sailboat company. It was started uh, 50 years ago. This is our 50th anniversary year, um, which is a, a wonderful milestone to, to celebrate um, and a, something we actually celebrated in May. So a really cool t- in terms of the timing of this disaster just happening. It was really fortunate that we were able to have that um, huge event uh, back in May. Trilogy, like I said, it's a family-owned and operated company. It was started by my grandfather, father, and his immediate family, um, his brother, aunt, and mom um, back in the early 70s. Originally, they're from Alaska. Long story short, my grandfather sunk his charter boat in Alaska, needed to rebuild a boat, asked my dad and uncle to help him do so. It took them two years to build. They built a a sailing trimaran, which is a three-hulled boat, and when that was finished, instead of going back into um, production, they decided to do a, a, a shakedown sale, took it from Alaska down San Francisco, and then basically just followed the coastline all the way through the, the South Pacific, um, the Galapagos Islands, and then uh, eventually made their way to Hawaii, where they landed on in Maui, on the island of Maui, and specifically in Lahaina. So um, they were established and rooted in Lahaina very quickly. Um, that was in the, again, the early seventies. And then in July 5th, 1973, they started their first tour, taking six guests from the island of Maui out of Lahaina to, um, the private island of Lanai. And that is now, um, our flagship tour. So we've been doing that tour for 50 years. It's called the Discover Lanai Tour. And, um, it's a all day experience that we bring guests out with us and get to share with them kind of the the slice of of cruising life. They get to sail with us. Um, all the food we serve has been in the family for generations. So fresh cinnamon rolls in the morning, uh, fruit, 
coffee, hot chocolate, tea on the way over. And then um, once on the island after the beach activities, we do a nice barbecue lunch at our pavilion um, overlooking the Manila Small Boat Harbor. And that's the teriyaki chicken. So it's a really it's a really cool family experience and something where I'm really proud to be a part of. And, um, you know, over 50 years, we've developed an incredible reputation and just uh, been able to sail with hundreds and thousands of guests from around the world and um, create lifelong memories with them. Yep, I've been on a couple times. It's it's wonderful. Um, you all have quite a few staff in the community, and it's family run. Um, what? How many folks are are with the organization there in the community? We have um, we have seven sailing catamarans, and we uh, two out of Maalaya Boat Harbor, uh, three out of Lahaina, and two that go off of the beach in Kaanapali. But all of the Kaanapali boats, they all live in Lahaina. So that's where they berth um, in the evening times. So we are predominantly a, a West Side operation. Our corporate office is in Lahaina. We employ 168 people. Um, we have a catering facility as well. So our operations have grown. And yeah, super fortunate. Uh, we actually just brought in our seventh boat online earlier this year. So that was really cool to, to have that seventh boat um, with us. Yeah, well, thank Thanks for sharing about all that. And I know that these will be hard. So um, just share whatever you're able to. So um, were you all prepared for something like what happened a couple weeks ago? I mean, I know there's been warnings and, and stuff, but did it come as a complete surprise or, or what, what was it like to, to you know, have that come, come all of a sudden onto the community? Um, yes. The, the, the devastate the fires uh, that I mean, what happened? What happened that afternoon evening was completely unexpected, uh, and obviously, it resulted in a tremendous amount of life loss and uh, and a whole town being decimated. But um, in terms of what we were expecting, we followed the weather very closely, and so we knew that there was a hurricane. Um, that was coming, not a direct hit to the island. So we've been monitoring that. Um, it wasn't looking like it was going to be terrible, terrible. <laughs> so we, meaning that um, normally we would take our boats on like a storm watch if if we know that there's going to be more of a direct hit or, or it was, it was going to be wind-wise just a scarier situation or, you know, um, thunder and rain and, and whatnot. So in, in terms of that, we we were had our operations pretty secure. We actually ran a trip that morning and um and the winds we woke up that morning and the winds were already very, very strong. Things were power lines were already um down. So I we had no electricity when we woke up. The electricity went out around 4 a.m. that morning. Um and they canceled school, work, none of, there was no internet, no, you know, no power. So I, I took my car, I went to my office to grab my laptop. And um, on my way there, what normally would take me a five minute drive, it took me about 20 minutes to get to the, to the office just that morning because of, um, again, no electricity, uh, 
the, the road lights weren't working. And then at one point I thought I was going to have a power line fall on my car. It was very scary. And I realized I'm like, I don't know what to do. Like if a power line hits your car, I don't know what to do. So I learned what to do if a power line were to hit your car um, after the fact. And luckily it didn't hit my car, but I did, I did watch a string of power lines, just like dominoes go down right in front of my face when, when I was waiting to get to my office. Um, so all that to be said, people were, were very aware of the winds. They were, you, you could not, not be aware of them. Um, and in that same light, people were inside and they had their windows shut and they were just, you know, waiting out this very windy, windy day. Um, I ended up leaving Lahaina with my oldest son because I had a very busy work day and I needed to get on my computer. So I took him um, to go to my parents' house where they had electricity and um, I was able to, you know, start my work day out of Wailuku. Um, and then, yeah, things just progressed. So I, I mean, I can definitely do a play by play or answer more specific questions, but um in terms of the outcome of what happened, that was no one had that on their radar. Yeah. And no recounting some of the devastations hard. So I don't know if we necessarily need all play by play, um, but I understand the family did get out safely. Um, maybe you could share a little bit about that. Um, and, I, and I was also interested to, to know maybe a little bit about um, the role that the boats had, because I, I understand you guys um, helped evacuate some people that were heading towards the oceans. So maybe you can recount a little bit of, of the uh, evacuation, if you would call it that. Gosh. So I, we were, we were still um, like, I was in communication nonstop with our company president who um, was in and out of Lahaina uh, three times that day. And, you know, we were trying to figure out like, how quickly will these winds pass? Can we actually run trips tomorrow? Can we run trips the next day? So we were still just like triaging logistics on our operations on how we were going to like keep business going again, not even thinking about a fire. Um, at four o'clock I called my husband and I was, and I wanted him to come to where I was because of the electricity. And I was like, let's just come to where I am. But he was like, the electricity will come back on, like probably by the next day, you'd come home, like, we'll have a fun camp out. So I was like, okay, cool. So I was like getting in my car and I called again, my, the company president who I didn't realize he was back in Lahaina. And the first thing he said to me was don't come to Lahaina. Cause, and I was like, oh, okay. Why? He's like, roofs are flying off houses. It's, it's crazy. It's so, it's so dangerous. Do not drive here. So I call up Mark, my husband again, and I told him that I'm like, Hey, I don't feel comfortable driving. Um, I hear it's really dangerous. Like maybe I like, I don't know what you guys should do. Like, should you stay or should you try to face the danger and drive out to me? And at that point he was like, there's a little fire that started. So he was aware of like this fire starting. So we were in communication about that for the next about 30 minutes off and on. Um, around five, gosh, I want to say it was like five o'clock or five fifteen. But the last conversation I had with him was the fires were getting closer. The firemen had come to our neighborhood and basically told the everyone um, who was kind of congregating in our front yard to grab life jackets and towels. And if the fire were to get closer, to run to the beach. And that was my last conversation I had with my husband where before the lines totally fell off. And so he had my then two-year-old, he was almost three, but Anyway, to be left with that like lingering um, <laughs> directive 
Um, and then not being able to hear from him for over two hours was just probably the hardest part for me personally that I had to go through because, um, in that time, the fires had escalated, um, to a, to a very, um, deathly level. Um, and so that was another problem. We just, there was no communication coming out of the West side. So we, we lost communication with our company president. The last I heard from him, he had given his truck to a family that was trying to flee the Harbor with no car. And he said, take my truck. Here's the directions to my house in Wailuku, get out of here. And then he, um, while the Harbor was on fire, swam across the Harbor to jump on one of our boats to rescue it from the flames. And so he was able to navigate, out of the harbor, just using his gut instinct and, and a compass because there was so much smoke he couldn't see. And that was a huge, I mean, very heroic and also saved an, you know, a boat of ours from complete um, damage and loss. Um, so he was kind of our, our voice because once he got out of the harbor, he was able to get cell service closer to the island of Lanai. And he relayed back to us just how extreme the, the fires were that they were, that they had burnt the Harbor, that they were taking over the entire, the entire um, Lahaina town. And so we were talking to our fleet manager. Um, Luckily, most of our leadership team was out of Lahaina already or doesn't live in Lahaina. So, so we were um, talking on a a big chat and they said, we're going to meet at the Harbor at Ma'alaya. Let's jump on some boats. We need to go out. We need to go back to Lahaina. Um, to, to see how we can help and also to, to check in on our boats. Cause again, we have, um, you know, five of our seven boats are based out of Lahaina. So, so around 10, 10 PM, um, our, a few of our captains, including my brother and my cousin, they jumped on our boat out of Ma'alaya and, um, with the coast guard, they, they went over to Lahaina and were able to be part of that first responder team, um, we were lucky. One of our captains, Captain Travis, he has a background in, um, he's an ex-fireman, uh, first responder. He, he passed all the, the check marks in order to like save people. So the Coast Guard allowed him to be a part of their, the actual like rescue mission. Um, so they paddled in on surfboards and basically were just trying to get people out of harm's way. So that, that effort that, um, we were able to help 50 people with the Coast Guard again, just, um, getting people out of harm's way. But, um, Travis did recount that there were, there were a lot of, of lives lost that he was, that he, he saw. So it was horrific. Um, I can't, I mean, I can't even imagine, I, I am hearing more and more stories that are coming out from that, from that specific event. And also just people's stories who, um, were waiting in the water who didn't get rescued in, but made it out alive, but still, you know, uh, 10 hours treading water and whatnot. But, um, that was our part in it. That's kind of, um, we were able to, to help those individuals and then, um, also rescue our boats. And then the next morning we quickly mobilized and immediately, um, got supplies out to Kaanapali and also picked people up who were stranded, who were trying to get back to family members. So, um, we kind of did those efforts for the next three or four days, working with, um, different organizations to deliver supplies and aid and, um, just being that, um, round trip, um, in and out because the roads were still all closed. Yeah. Um, what a story. Um, you, you all are, are clearly one of the leaders in the kind of the business community and the overall community. 
with that many people there, um, what kind of impact across family, friends, and, and the overall company have you guys felt? Uh, you know, it's I'm I'm so proud of being from Maui. I'm so proud of our island. I'm I'm proud of our company. I'm proud of the people who live here. It was an incredible um, thing to witness the the true aloha spirit, like just rising up, like instantly, just people dropping what they were doing to help. And um, I mean, it it brings me to tears just how how quickly our people, you know, the people of Hawaii, like rose up to do that together. Um, I wish I. You know, I wish that we had more military help at that moment. Um, it would have it would have made a difference to to have federal support quicker. But um, in that again, in the days that followed, just again the the community love that that poured through was just beautiful. And and also from you know the guests, our guests that have sailed with us in the past, the outreach that they tons of emails just coming through, checking in on us, um, asking how they can help, even though they're not on Island, what can they send boxes um, of clothes, food, like supplies, like people just wanted to help. And, and so it was really encouraging. Um, even though we're still in a bleak situation, just again, that outpouring has been so beautiful to, to be a part of and to witness. Um, where, where do things go from here for Trilogy? Oh man, lots of prayer. We need, we need lots of prayer. Um, Lahaina has a a very long road of, of recovery. It, no one has that crystal ball, but, but the outlook, um, you know, is three to five years, um, for Lahaina town. Um, and what that means for Trilogy is, is that's a big part of our operations. Again, as we, we depart out of Lahaina Harbor. So, as a company, we are trying to keep our boats operating. We are trying to keep our employees on payroll. That's our biggest um, motivation is just we don't want to see more families have to leave the island. Uh, so Maui is open. And that at first, that narrative um you know, was was the opposite. People were saying, don't come to Maui, don't come to Maui, but it's, we need people to come to Maui. So that narrative has changed and, and it, and Maui is open. Lahaina is closed. Lahaina will be closed for quite some time, but the rest of Maui is open and we do need visitors to come here. Um, the best way visitors can support a Maui business is by visiting their dollar, four out of $5 impacts, um, a, a Hawaiian family. It, it, that is truly the best way that we can receive support right now is again, just having visitors keep their Maui vacation plans. Maybe it means you're not going to be staying, you know, in Lahaina cause you can't. Um, but there's other places on the Island that are open that would receive you and, and would be a wonderful, wonderful place to be. And of course, sailing with Trilogy, we just trying to keep our boat sailing. So the, the more people we can come visit us, the, the better chance we have of um, staying in business. And, and you already covered the first part of this a little bit, but um, how can folks outside the community support Maui and Lahaina? And, and are there some good areas for donations to support the lengthy recovery? 
There's a lot of organizations right now that are very, um, that are focused on providing aid and, and relief to Lahaina community. Um, a couple that we promote would be the Hawaii Community Fund, Maui United Way, um, the Lahaina Salvation Army. We've also start, we've partnered with um, GEM Global Empowerment Movement. They are a, a, a nonprofit that um, goes into these cities or towns of distress and then basically mobilizes. So we've been um, partnering with them on raising money that will help aid um, direct victims of the fire. And we also start our, our own GoFundMe for our employees. Um, we A third of our employees lost housing. Um, I was one of them. I did lose my house in that disaster. Um, luckily, I have family on island, which makes a huge difference, and I have a place to stay. But yeah, a third of our workforce lost their houses. So just trying to get them the direct aid that they need um, as soon as we can. So it's been, um, people have been so generous, and I, I continue to to urge people to to keep being generous in these different areas because that money is really helping people. Leanne, I really, really appreciate you taking some time to share your experiences. Um, thanks for being with us to, to share what it was like. No problem. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for, again, reaching out. It's, um, it's great having these deep and long friendships and happy to share my story. There's, there's thousands of stories out there, um, and we are just one of them. But again, proud to be Maui, Lahaina Strong, uh, thanks for keeping us on your podcast and sharing our story with others. Thanks again, Leanne, for sharing your experiences with the family and the community. We know it's been uh, a really hard time that continues to unfold as, as so many people have been impacted um, there in the community. For our listeners, if you'd like to donate, uh, please check out the notes of this session. Uh, there's some links for organizations that are on the ground um, trying to support recovery in Hawaii. Thanks for joining us um, in trying to do our part to help.